0: Welcome to School of Movies. Get out. No, 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 come back. That's the movie we're doing this week.
1: You got your toothbrush? Do You have your Yeah. Do You have your cozy clothes?
2: Got
3: that.
2: What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might want to, you know.
3: Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's... (laughs)
4: <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bruh. Meeting families, and taking road trips. So come back all bougie, man. Come back, get your damn pants up to your damn stomach. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you guys coming up from the city?
3: Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend. Can
0: I see your license, please? He
3: wasn't driving.
0: I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to
5: see his ID. Call me Dean
3: and you're hungry,
5: my man. So how long
6: has this been going on, this this thing? (laughs) We hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go.
3: Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm gonna quit.
5: She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually.
1: Are you ready for
5: this? I'm back in the beat. So look, I go do my research. Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this
0: suburb. But it's cool,
5: bro. How are you not scared of this, man?
0: Couldn't see no brother around here. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable
2: with my being here. Get out. Sorry, man. Get out. Yo. Ah! Bros, we gotta go. Is everything
3: okay?
2: Rose, the keys. Just get the keys. I don't know where they are. Rose? Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Sink. Mom, is a terrible thing to waste. If there's too many white people, I get nervous.
3: <laughs> no. No. No, 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 no.
0: Jordan Peele's second directed feature, Us, is currently, at the time of recording, tearing up the charts in movie theatres and generating countless Us Explained videos on the YouTubes. We will wait on the release of his third feature to talk about us because we're going to need the Blu-ray to study and absorb his dense, symbolic and intensely detailed style. And this is why it's the perfect time now to discuss his first feature, the much celebrated Get Out. If you've never seen it, you are strongly advised to do so before listening. Sometimes you can listen to our show first, sometimes it makes it better. But in this case, watch first. It is superb, and it unfolds in such a masterful way that your first time should not be hearing the plot mapped out. I'd almost say, like, oh, if, if you're like, I don't like horror. Even if you don't like horror, like, this this might almost be worth it, mm. I think. You know, it's 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 an important film and as with captain marvel rather than fill up that episode with dudes we have brought back in from our black panther show two guests of color so hello again to eric jones of waxing cinematic uh, good day everyone and coach activist and artist akila hope
4: T.S. motherfucking
0: (laughs) name. Okay, now before we start, some of you may have picked up on the rougher quality to my voice in recent weeks. I think I've strained it and my vocal cords may have suffered. I know I'm finding myself less able to master the range I used to with New Century and it's coming off as gravelly and sexy in a kind of a George Clooney style, which ain't bad in the long run, but it does mean I can no longer make myself sound like Owen Wilson on cue. What? I can't do it. I can't do the wow anymore. <clears throat> so in the next few weeks, I'm going to hold off on recording new material. and I'm going to try my best to heal up and treat my poor throat right. Fortunately, we have enough shows banked for me to put out during this rest period, including one on Resident Evil 2, one on Metal Gear Solid, and then there's both The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, which will be the last of the commissioned shows from our most recent window. I sincerely hope my vocal range returns, and it gets easier to speak for long periods because so much of my identity is tied up in my voice. Luckily, my hands and arms are working fine so I can write and I can edit. So first off, regarding Get Out, because we need to set the tone for this podcast, question to the group, why does Jordan Peele framing this as a black comedy, all puns pardoned please, make it more of a success, and why does Peele's background in sketch comedy make this film a very different animal than, say, the same exact story shot from the sensibility of a deeply serious director like Christopher Nolan? quite apart from the fact that Christopher Nolan is obviously white. Very white.
7: A huge part of how the humour works incredibly well for this film is the interactions between the characters, and it's what sells the horror and the tragedy even better, because you've had that the the humour in the interactions between Chris and Rose early on in the film. <laughs> you're invested in that relationship. You can see how well they work together and that's why it then becomes so upsetting when that is lost. And I think the other very strongly humorous element is obviously Rod and I love Rod Rod is amazing <laughs> and he he serves two really key purposes in this one I'm going to talk about later and that's his, uh, his character as detective and the other one is his role as ten- tension puncturer now I think this is possibly where the sketch comedy background that Jordan Peele has comes into how expertly he does this, but he is very rapidly rising up the list of my favourite directors because I have now seen two films of his and my God, can this man handle tension and release Mm. expertly. And that, I think, is in part due to his comedy timing background.
3: Mm. People are
0: calling him the new Hitchcock or the new Shyamalan. It's like, listen, Hitchcock never made me laugh like this. Neither did Shyamalan. And I was never gripped by any of the things they've done, the way I've been gripped by these. Even though I love The Sixth Sense, but I was never just... Shit!
7: He might be be who Shyamalan thinks he is.
0: Maybe. (laughs) But, I mean, this comes down to what The Rock said in Fighting With My Family. "But Don't worry about being the next me. Be the first you. (laughs) And Jordan Peele is definitely that. Uh, Peele wrote this film, which he describes as a social thriller rather than a horror, in response to the racial lie perpetrated by white liberals during the obama administration what was this lie
4: is this the um the whole idea of uh, we don't see color
0: <laughs> it's definitely related to that <coughs> uh, okay well how about this racism is over now we say so oh post-ra- uh. the post-racial world well we just had a black president so racism's over now <laughs> okay so this was written 2015, 2016, during the rise of Trump. And uh, there, it was released in um, 2017 after Trump had gotten in. So it, it's not post-Trump, really. I mean, the way that us is definitely post-Trump. If you There's several readings, no spoilers for us, but you could read several uh, things into that. But um, th- the lie that Peel was getting at was the illusion of having taken a step forwards pierced a barrier and now we're never gonna go back and it's a level of complacency that has allowed the rise of tyrannical nazi level racism that it's, it's made everything worse uh, as a result i'm not saying this is not me saying obama made everything worse but the idea that oh we don't have to worry about this anymore definitely did not help
4: it's what you call the kind of the backlash against the swing
0: forward or the pendulum yes indeed you can relate this as well to uh the uh, repeated oscar bait films about race which specifically deal with a white savior racists are just a bunch of bad apples racism is not something horribly endemic in society particularly american society and has been there for years ain't going away anytime soon and needs to be confronted that's why uh, Green Book got all the plaudits this year. While The Hate You Give, a film. Well, there were three films that took major awards and, and were paid attention to. If Beale Street Could Talk was also uh, given some attention, though not nearly enough. And uh, The Fucking Fantastic Black Klansmen, all of them set in the late 60s or early 70s. These all send a very clear message. Racism's something that happened in the past. The Hate You Give, racism's happening right fucking now and it's terrible was ignored
4: we thought it was going to be not business as usual but it's business as usual in fact it's more than business as usual it is everybody battle stations to the most end to push right back Mm. get the wallpaper
0: out yeah yeah Now, uh, I don't want to lead you on this, uh, either of you, uh, and um, we can only really answer for ourselves, not for everyone, but uh, what did it feel like to watch Get Out as a person of colour versus, for us, what did it feel like to watch as a white liberal?
8: For me, I I looked at it through as a lens of a lens, so not just as a a black man in America, um, but also um, a black man working in corporate America. So, cause that's where I work I, I, you know, I just work in a, I work in a tall skyscraper and I'm at a desk most of my day and everything. And that's kind of the, the more, the, the, the most lived experience that I go through every day. What's the, the, the father's name, um, dean. a dean, dean and a yeah. Dean and a Miss and Missy. You you come across people like that every day. And, um, while, while, Thankfully, nothing happens uh, as extreme as to what happens to Chris, but all of those microaggressions that come at him, especially when he's at the party and everybody's touching him and everybody commenting on him and everything. And it, it just compounds on you moment after moment. And, you know, you just you see it and it's and it's like, you know, I, I don't know what all of Jordan Peele's experiences are in life, but. He, he got that for a lot of us. And like I said, for me, since the, the corporate experience is one I experience every day, you know, you're kind of in that that same experience here. You're in a a, a white dominated uh, power structure. You just want to do what you're best at. But you're kind of in a situation where you always have to decide how much, you know, do I re- try to remain on myself or do I try to give up some of myself? just so I can, you know, but, you know, just to survive here. And um, so that's that's the lens through which uh, it
0: resonated with me most immediately. During my research, I watched The Philosophy of Get Out, Wisecrack Edition. Um, Wisecrack were a little bit too cheery about uh, the uh, themes of uh, this especially the deeper reaching and uh, traumatic themes of Get Out. But uh, they did raise some fine points about something called negrophilia, which is fascination with all things black. This is something that began with Parisian bohemians in the 1920s, desperate to be hip. And I realize just using the term hip is a co-modification. It throws people of color to the extremes of, oh, brilliant artist or accomplished sports people. Or if you throw it to the other extreme, as dangerous thugs which denies people of colour the ability to just be normal, the same collection of talents and flaws as Caucasians. Fixating on colour forces the expectation of stereotypes into all interactions, and what Get Out demonstrates is that this makes black people deeply uncomfortable as their own identity and experiences are subsumed by white assumption. They also cite W.E.B. Dubois on the 2 of the black American, forced to be one thing for white society and another in their private life. Again, this is a theme sharply laid out in The Hate You Give and another film that came out last year, Sorry to Bother You. In The Hate You Give, Starr goes to a fancy prep school, kind of like the uh, one Miles goes to in Into the Spider-Verse. And she goes through her whole morning routine with her family and she's basically herself. And then she goes to school and suddenly she draws all that in and she has to be someone else who doesn't stand out. Meanwhile, all her white friends are like, yo, what's up, homegirl? Really cannot say enough about the hate you give for just putting you in the shoes of racially charged modern day scenarios through the eyes of a teenage girl. And if your parents with kids coming up to teenage years this is an important film to show them. It does get upsetting, so watch it first.
4: Um, when I watched it initially, it was something where I was with a bunch of friends and we were kind of whispering back and forth and reacting. And it was something because, I mean, activist circles, we saw the symbols and we saw the signs and we'd see certain things happening, but we didn't realise the extremity of it all until mm. we reached a, reach a certain point, which we'll probably discuss later. But it was... It was all the tropes that we used to, um, Chris being black, going to the family house, the kind of virtue signaling that Dean was playing, um, and it just became more and more evident. And basically, you could see the train coming to to hit, to proverbial hit, train coming to hit Chris, and we were just waiting when it was going to happen, and when it happens, it's, yeah... <laughs> It's experience that's not uncommon for people of color. Mm.
0: As a white liberal, uh, it's <laughs> there's a, a, a very uncomfortable, squeamish feeling uh, because they make first off they cast Bradley Whitford, who, if you spent your twenties um, growing up watching The West Wing, is something of a white liberal hero, and that that wasn't an accident. And he's he and Missy are kind of positioned as the liberal elite, as in they're very well off. So it's very easy to just do a hand wavy, well, this is the liberal elite, they don't really mean it. But it's far more powerful if you turn that inwards and start questioning, okay, when do I maybe do this? Uh, You know, even in jest. Like, when I asked you guys (laughs) if you wanted to be on the uh, show, I think I said something on the lines of, we don't want to be the uh, white guys um, doing the uh, podcast who would have voted for Obama a third time. And, like, (laughs) even if it was in jest, I'm still, like, bringing across this, what uh, you referred to earlier, uh, Eric, as a microaggression. Can you uh, explain what those are? Because they're the sort of things that just regular white people might not necessarily be uh familiar with
8: uh yeah sure
0: um uh, is
8: is just something that you might like you might say and in retrospect it probably is really small but because of the history of america and how black people oh not well not just black people but you know all all minorities in america have been treated it's micro because it's really not that damning of a a statement but it is aggressive
5: so how long has this been going on this this thing
1: (laughs) how
8: long (laughs) so for example for myself i'm six foot four and one thing that i will always be asked is because I'm a I'm a tall, um, husky gentleman, um I will always be asked, um, do I play football or basketball? You know, American football, the NFL, a lot of the stars are black and for the National Basketball Association, a majority of the stars are black. I do like football. I do like basketball, but it, it's it's still a generalization that the first minute you see me, this tall black man, that that is the first thing you will ask me to assume that is something that might be, you know, of an interest to me. Mm-hmm. In, in my case, it is true, but it's, you know, it, it would be something that's like that because that's a general, a generalization that is tied to, black people with their um, their bodies and um, their physical attributes, which definitely ties into the movie, because it's, it's basically the origin of how this plot gets started. It's a, kind of a harmless statement all in, it, in itself, but it's it's a really hard-hitting, because there's a lot of history behind it, behind whatever it is you're saying that, you would, that no one would know. You might not realize it, but it is something.
0: So rather than being asked open-ended questions like, what do you like, what do you do? You're, you're asked questions that specifically call attention to your uh, ethnicity in a kind of right. now you have to confront the thing that i just invoked so uh, right. you, you then end up yeah. kind of embarrassedly going uh not really into football oh really yeah. and then there's a, an extension i'm assuming yeah where it's like oh, oh yeah. that's surprising because i would have thought that yes 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 i'm sure you would have thought but somehow no <laughs>
4: um, the classic one is where are you from and then when you say oh i'm from birmingham no, where are you from? Ah. That is the classic one. Or in my case, being a person who has who has um, locks, is always the same assumption of, can you get me some weed? And I'm just like, mm. no.
0: Uh, there's the other thing that uh, I had to absorb watching it is, um, and this especially you know, after having written for several years um, – Uh, various books including various lead black characters that it's really important to know that even if you are woke even if you know what shit's going down even if you've talked to as many people as you possibly can just to get as much perspective as you possibly can no one's throwing you a well-done black pride parade for being the white person who isn't terrible So, I suppose just like it's best not to congratulate yourself for not being terrible.
7: Well, I'd say the main thing is don't expect other people to do the emotional work of making you feel better. Bingo. You're in charge of your responses. So you look at them.
0: Yeah. Yes. Sharon, what was it like watching Get Out as a white liberal non elite?
7: It really brought home what horror is for. One of the things that Jordan Peele said about this was that he he liked being able to explore things that he himself fears. And that is really pivotal to horror for me. I will tell people I love the horror genre, but there are so many horror films that I can't stand Mm. because they're not personal. They are. They. They feel very. You know. A, a different person wrote this, to edited it, to directed it. There's so many threads coming into it that it doesn't mean anything. Anymore. And oftentimes
0: they feel more like a kill delivery system yeah. than an actual story. Absolutely.
7: And that, to me, is not a horror movie. So the the kind of the psychological horror, ideally one that's written and directed by the same person, so that it has that real personal mm-hmm. connection, is is the kind that I respond to.
0: You can compare that and to the, hot sauce sometimes. Like that. Sometimes people just throw so much hot. sauce sauce onto food it doesn't taste of anything anymore it's it's not even food anymore it is a capsaicin (laughs) delivery system
7: indeed you're doing it purely just to burn your tongue at this stage you're not interested in the flavor
0: the hot sauce reference could be taken as a microaggression just mentioning that because uh, hot sauce is huge in the uh, african-american community i could be wrong on that one but uh, I have to keep checking myself.
4: <laughs> it's, it's definitely it's definitely a trope. But it's yeah. there's, there's some, there is a trope there. But it's not like I've got hot sauce in my bag. That's, <laughs> that's a trope.
0: <laughs> I'm so sorry. Continue, show. Oh dear.
7: So yeah, if the if the selection of writers and directors that you're choosing from is a very narrow one, even if you are getting personal stories from them, it's a it's a A narrow selection of experiences. And so you're getting the same voices discussing the same fears over and over again. And we don't learn anything. So for me, it very much, it felt like such a a fantastic experience being able to see a horror story through the eyes of somebody who wasn't like me, which is a bit a theme of of something that they talk about frequently in the film the the number of times that chris uses cameras to to emphasize the fact that this is his perspective this is his eyes on things it's it's di- referenced directly by jim mm-hmm. um the the person who wants him
0: I want your eye man
7: yeah 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 and that that sounds awful i don't want jordan peele's eyes i'm just extremely grateful for him to share You're them with me grateful
0: for his perspective yeah. yeah and some of our best um and favorite horror movies are films that are deeply personal and are written and directed by the same person because they are delivering to jordan peele said on the uh, his commentary that he remembered very vividly a dream he had and i thought this is a guy who remembers his dreams like us has even more of a dreamlike quality than this so I'm going to go ahead and guess that a lot of the absolute best horror directors are those that bring it from the heart and go to their personal fears and experiences and remember vividly their dreams and how to detach you slightly from reality from what you're watching to unnerve you.
7: Yeah, well, that, that's a skill that Peel has got that he throws out something which is surrealistic and then he anchors it very firmly to the ground.
0: Mm. A couple of the, uh, just a list, folks, if you're worried about microaggressions, uh, the, the ones that we're, uh, I've flagged here is the whole voting for Obama a third time, which not only gets said by um, Dean, but actually gets flagged earlier by Rose. She, like She says it and then he repeats it. What the ladies were saying last week on the Captain Marvel show about women being asked by men to smile, but only when they're alone. That's a microaggression. Then he's like that. Th- he's showing the uh, pictures and like recreating the 1936 Berlin Olympics and saying "fucking Hitler standing there with his, you know, white supremacy and screw that guy." Just to, to say like I'm really on side. Just just to nudge Chris, really on side. And um, then when they're out in the garden and they uh, uh, they see Walter. And um, we've already met Georgina, I think. And he's like, oh, yeah, we've got we've got black help. It's a cliche. And he's like sort of being openly, actively, verbally guilty. He doesn't give Chris anywhere to go but discuss this particular issue. And Daniel Kaluuya, we've already mentioned him on the Black Panther show in terms of how fucking fantastic he is as an, as an actor. But he's out of this world in this just in terms of his eyes and his body movement and just so much bunched up inside that chris doesn't say he can't say because a lot of the times he can't even really put it into words it's just too uncomfortable
7: well that's something that rose picks up on as well and or well that she highlights when he's talking about walter and she says well what did he say something Mm. and his response can only be it's not what he said it's the way he said
9: it
0: For further reading on this, check out In Focus, Microaggressions, and Get Out.
9: Thus, Chris is the one who ends up having to apologize and reconcile over and over again. Cool.
0: It's all good. Don't talk to your dad. It's fine.
2: It's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Forget about it. Oh, no. It's cool. I was just confused. Forget it. Never mind.
3: No, no, no. Stop. Don't. Don't do that. Don't. Okay.
2: Okay. I'm sorry. It's all good. Right?
3: So you're comfortable enough, right?
9: It's perfect. Thanks. But no matter how many times he demures to the feelings of others, it just keeps happening.
3: Do you find the being African-American has more advantage or disadvantage in the modern world?
9: (laughs) And it happens a lot. The effects are cumulative. If they weren't such a regular occurrence, nobody would care. As real as this portrayal is, the film's true stroke of genius is that it depicts this within a horror movie. Because of the genre, everybody watching the film is expecting something awful to happen. Every single moment holds the potential for life-threatening danger. Despite the numerous false alarms, we all know that at some point, the axe will fall. We don't know when or how often, but it's as certain as death. The audience, in other words, regardless of their identity, experiences the same guarded tension marginalized people feel every day. Those of us who are the target of racism move through the world knowing that at some point, someone who looks like this is going to say something like this. I do know Tiger.
1: Oh, that's great. Gordon loves Tiger. I
0: love that one in particular because it sounds, it's a compounded, gag because it's a microaggression of ah the world famous black golfer and a double whammy of being out of touch enough to not know about the whole infidelity thing but Th- those were the, the microaggressions how in con- by contrast does jeremy the son's candor with chris vary from that of his parents and how can you interpret jeremy's character from what he says to chris
4: he's reaching that point where it turns from subvertive to overt racism
0: mm-hmm.
4: is a constant talking about sports, a person of your genet- of your genetic makeup mm. is very much playing into emerging from this very subtle way Dean was um was um, being aggressive to hey I want to talk about something aggressive and I want to say if you go to the gym you'll be jacked mm. and it's Just say you could be
0: a beast? Mm,
4: you could be a beast.
7: That's because not good. Cool thing to say. Yeah. He doesn't want to be a beast.
5: With your frame and your genetic makeup, if you really pushed your body, and I mean really trained, you know, no pussyfooting around, you'd be a fucking
1: beast. He's a photographer. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's it's assumption that, that, that as soon as he, he, he meets him, well, um, Peel. Hang on, I'm taking over, uh, Eric. Anything on this?
8: Um, just that um, my my observation originally, and then uh, this kind of got confirmed when I rewatched it with Peel's commentary mm-hmm. is that uh, Jeremy is definitely the one who they're all in on it, but. He's the one that now is at the point where he, he gives no fucks about it. So he kind of tries that line where he wants to, I'll give away the secret, you know, but I'm not going to give away the secret. So I'm just going to poke and prod as much as I can uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to get the rise out of you. And um, I, I I do love his first scene, his first scene at the, uh, you know, at the dinner table, especially when um when Chris says he's like, oh, I, I have a rule. No. No play fighting with uh, drunk dudes, and um, he uh, he kind of has like he starts to put them put him in that headlock. But if you, like I was just looking closely, and you look at Chris, he does have a good grip on Jeremy's arm. Yeah. You know, he's saying it's like, all right, look, I'm not, you can be the douche as much as you want in front of your family, but I'm I'm, I'm still going to make sure that like you're not going to go too far. He's far more rough which is apparent in how he um, he obtains the, the, the victims to kidnap versus how um, Rose obtains them.
7: Mm. Yeah, I did wonder actually about the whole Jeremy and Rose and their involvement in this, because given that they're both quite young, one presumes that their stakes in the immortality element of this whole project are fairly minimal. Mm. And it left me feeling very unsure of Rose as a character and eventually I had to kind of just let go of trying to work out anything about how she saw stuff and just put it down to just she's surrounded by all of this and it's turned her into a complete disconnected from reality person whereas with Jeremy you don't want
0: to use think, the word psychopath like Jordan Peele did
7: no, <laughs> no, well, okay he wrote it that way I'll 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 use it in that context that he's um, he's obviously chosen it already but But
0: you're a professional in that with, regard.
7: With Jeremy I think it's I mean, he looks like he stepped out of Deliverance. They even give him a ukulele at one point. I know it's not a band show, but it's not far off.
0: Side note, Caleb Landry-Jones, again, does this phenomenal performance. He's the creepiest little fucker ever. Mm. He was in uh, uh, X-Men First Class as Banshee. He was one of the ones that uh, uh, just got written out of the whole series after one brief performance but uh, yeah everything he says and does everything about his look his hair his ratty little beardy mustache thing and like his his eyes and his like way too eager look and his rocking it just makes him seem like this predatory little like hyena mm. little but he guy. he
7: also really comes across as somebody who has properly stepped out the shallow end of the gene pool like he's he's there is nothing particularly special or uh, or inviting or charismatic about him at all and so in him but
0: he's trying to be tyler durden exactly with all his gestures. exactly
7: yeah. so in him it was kind of seeing all of this coming from a place of very very deep insecurity
0: yeah now, the, the whole like trying to pit himself against chris repeatedly physically mm. and i think jordan peele may have mentioned that like of, of all of them jeremy's the one that covets the body he wants to have one of his own Uh, And that's fucking bone chilling if you start thinking about it. So he's just looking at Chris with, yeah, I could be you, eyes.
10: Hi, I'm Jordan Peele. Now, there are a lot of theories and wild conspiracy ideas floating around the internet about Get Out, so let's dive in. Okay, at Inbox Pulse, when all the guests arrive, the groundskeeper and Georgina greet them out of their cars. Rarely would a housekeeper greet guests, but because they are the grandparents, it is their party they were greeting. Absolutely true. Um, you see when the, the guy, when, the, when the, all, all the old white people come to the uh, show up at the party, Walter is uh, giving them a hug and everything, they're old friends. And all the guests arrived in black cars, nothing was by accident. There you go, that's right. Hey, they all arrived in black cars. Like the black bodies are gonna ride away in. Forgive me if you, this has already been mentioned, but the scene on the porch where Jeremy's playing the ukulele struck me as interesting. The tune he was playing was part of the, the, the jig, I don't know how you say that word, from, from violin, paratita number two in G minor by uh, uh, J.S. Bach. It was being played much slower than normally played on the instrument, which one might consider inferior to or beneath the violin. <laughs> in, in effect, the end of the tune indicated to Chris that the, the jig was up. That's what I got from it at least. Man, the power of marijuana. I literally told Caleb, the actor who plays Jeremy, just play anything on the thing. Play the, He doesn't know the jig. He's not, he's not whipping out Bach on this thing. He's just playing a random song
0: but he does definitely finish it off with a little Yankee Doodle from Deliverance, in which some white city folk go up into the Appalachians, somewhere they shouldn't be, and one of them is caught and has his body used, dominated, and controlled by an abuser. Kyloornmos,
10: eating Fruit Loops and milk separately. Won't mix white with colors. I've had a lot of people say this to me. The, the Fruit Loops and the milk are definitely representational of a, a colorful uh, food and a white food, but um, it's just more that she's kind of like this really twisted girl who's got this sort of method. Ultimately, the plan of the Armitage is to mix partial credit. Kyla Menords. Anyone else like how, in the beginning, Rose said that her dad won't chase Chris out of the house with a shotgun, but at the end, she did? Um, yeah, so that was definitely on purpose. I almost had Chris say the line, I don't want to get shit, chased off the lawn with a rifle, but then no one says that. I had to make it shotgun. I, I'm glad you got that.
0: However, there is extra symbolism there in that a shotgun traditionally can be loaded with non-lethal birdshot that can be used to see someone off your property without actually killing them. She uses a hunting rifle used for felling larger mammals like deer because she's a hunter and he's been her prey all along.
10: At Bonnie Lynette, when Rod was outside the airport trying to call Chris, there was an announcement in the background for flight 237.
1: Flight 237
10: number referenced a lot in a lot of movies, originated as most haunted room in The Shining. That's right, that's what we call a little Easter egg for the Kubrick fans. Um, really easy one to do. We just like, it's like two, three, seven, and somehow get credit for it. My voice is used in the film twice. I do the sound of the dying deer. <sighs> Maybe people didn't know it was me. And I also did, the. United Negro College Fund.
4: A mind is a terrible thing to
10: waste. At the Taco Bell vampire. (laughs) This movie is worth seeing in the theater uh, for audience reactions alone. The writing had so many subtle hints.
6: Uh, That's the basement, we had to seal it up. Some black mold down there.
10: Black people's bodies are used as molds, a hollow shell for white people to use. Black mold. Yeah. I meant that That's what I meant. When I did that. So I take it the skinny black guy at the party wore that that hat to cover up any scars from his brain transplantation. Not the most elegant tone. Skinny skinny black guy, okay.
0: Logan riding the body of Andre. Yes,
10: yeah, so the at the, at the end of the movie of course it's revealed that Um, Several of the characters are post-Operation, Georgina, Walter, and and Logan, or Andre, um, who all wear hats or a wig. Thank you for this. These are very good thoughts. Um, Some of y'all are crazy. I I honestly um, never thought people would pick up on this stuff so fast. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm inspired to bring more.
0: That was from a piece by Vanity Fair called "Jordan Peele Breaks Down Get Out Fan Theories from Reddit." It became apparent as we watched this uh, this time round, and I think Peele mentioned just a little bit of a uh, of this that Chris actually went on a hero's journey, and it makes perfect sense if you watch it. Like the story structure is so tight that it does follow those those movements so which
7: also then makes it feel like a fairy tale which makes it feel very effective as a horror
0: firstly what does chris need to overcome that's what most heroes journeys are that you know are are worth a damn are the hero needs to either uh that they believe a lie that they need to see through by the end or they need to overcome something about themselves and what are the corresponding steps throughout the hero's journey? I'll, I'll just name each step and you guys can just sort of shout out. And also, does it break these steps in an important way? I haven't got any specific moments in mind, but I'm, I'm interested in scenarios where they go against Campbell. Step one, the uncomfortable world. The beginning where we, we meet him and he's shaving and he's feeling, un- he's very much feeling uncomfortable because the whole thing's based on guess who's coming to dinner. So it, it, they went out appeal uh, went out of his way to make it as universally relatable as just like we've all had to meet the in-laws. Step 2 the call.
4: Yeah, it's the it's the actual invite to the to the house.
0: Yeah. Which is immediately followed by the next step, the refusal. Because
7: he doesn't want to go. <laughs> and you don't blame him in yeah. the slightest.
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the next is the crossing of the threshold.
7: Peel mentioned this in the commentary actually, the uh when they get to the woods around where Rose's parents live mm-hmm. and after they've hit the deer and the yeah. out of the car, he's there's a point where he's actually standing on the edge of the woods. Yeah. And he has to then make the choice to step into the woods yeah. to Which go he keep, after that deer. He then
0: dreams about, so that's how significant that moment was.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It was that was the moment essentially it was the moment of
0: initial dread of mm. In that point. This usually leads to the the middle bit of whatever quest there is. So it's the path of trials. He gets a whole bunch of trials, and then allies and enemies. But get out more than any other hero's journey that i have ever allies seen. Allies are it's your like, enemies. Your allies, and then this, <laughs> and this ally, this ally, this ally. Nope, enemy, 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 <laughs> enemy. And there's only really one person he can actually rely on,
7: and that is Rod.
0: Yeah. Who, if there's gonna be a sage. I think it's Rod, because Rod's like, don't trust these people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the next bit's the innermost cave, and this is always the bit that I'm kind of uh, uh, thrown on, and it's, it, like, I think I take it far too literally sometimes by going, well, when do they go down to a deep, dark place? But um, what does this represent again, show?
7: Uh, Well, the the innermost cave is just the point at which you've you've really gone properly past the threshold. There is literally no way of going back now. Mm -hmm. And I think, oddly enough, in this, it is a literal innermost cave because it's when Missy flicks him down into the sunken place.
0: And that would also cross over with the meeting with the goddess because she is... Super powerful. Like her flicking the, you know... Uh, sink. sink. into the floor. Sink, That's sink. It, yes. And then she just goes, sink. sink. And then they, they lower the pitch in her voice is fucking bone chilling. It reminds me of the ancient one in Doctor Strange just going, and then knocking him out of his body with a couple of gestures. Just there's, like, it's terrifying how easily she seems to be able to draw her web around him. He suffers a metaphorical death when he is thrown out of his body after confronting the whole family. And ends up in the sunken place Which equates to living death The ordeal is his time in the chair The reward is his getting out of the chair Because of his own initiative This also symbolises his rebirth Now equipped with the ability to act in self-preservation The road back I think is just that stretch of road Outside the house of him just like Trying to get the fuck back Back to uh, Mm -hmm. uh, um, civilization In all its far more welcoming Uncivility And uh, the return with the elixir Now (laughs) <laughs> the return with the elixir, then you got to ask, what is it? It's The elixir is not mistrust of white people. What is it about Chris that he's facing at the beginning that he overcomes by the end?
8: I guess the only thing I can think of that he overcomes is I guess when he is about to leave and he had, he hits Georgina and then he was like, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But he goes back for her to mm-hmm. kind of... Symbolize him finally moving past his paralyzation um, when his mother was uh, hit when he was a child. Yeah. If I'm, I don't know if I'm, on the, if I'm on the right path with that.
7: Yeah, no, that, that would be my thought as well. The, um, the, the link to the deer as well at the beginning, Chris has that deer in headlights moment from his childhood that has hung over him for years and has left him with that feeling that when something bad is happening, he can't act. And Missy takes horrendous advantage of it. I have to say, I, she's the villain in this for me. She is, like, the the absolute worst in this. For the me. queen bee. The, not necessarily in the sense that she's organising everything, but just the fact that...
0: She's, she's so conscious about exactly what she's doing.
7: Well, she's, she's a professional psychiatrist. You know, he, he even... Um, Dean points out at the beginning, she, you know, she is qualified and trained and yet violating every single moral element.
0: You Apparently, could almost imagine that Dean being brought up by his crazed father, mm. uh, you know, and, and becoming a doctor with this constant influence. He'd be like, well, I guess we could just do the whole brain swap thing. Mm. But Missy had to go through all kinds of something we never get to see that, that led her down this very dark path yeah. of And mind honestly,
7: it, it puts me on edge with her from almost the very beginning, right when she sets up the... Um, the pre-hypnotic suggestion when they're having that conversation around the table in the garden,
1: mm-hmm.
7: when they first uh-huh. meet, she taps, as soon as he starts, well, not as soon as, but when he talks about this, this incident from his childhood, she taps the glass. And that's setting up the, the framework for her then being able to construct the, what she's going to use to take control of him. And it meant that I was suspicious of her and on edge with her from very, very early on and then when they're sat in the room talking when she's um sort of come across him in the night and and she's ostensibly in that scene at least at the beginning she's she is supposed to come across like she's trying to help him um but the the fact that the the affect she's showing is there's no empathy there she's very uh Very brisk, very cold. She's got this slight, controlling smile on her face, and it just—that was the point for me. Of, oh, this is bad. This is so very, very bad.
4: It was when I when I rewatched it literally today. I rewatched it, and when I saw that scene, I knew what what she was doing. It was something that was like, oh god, she's setting it up. She's essentially being very predatory with mm. her skills. Yeah. And absolutely. She's set it up, and the way she appears is not a kindness. It's a setup. Mm. And he walks straight into it.
7: Yeah.
4: And it's bone chilling.
7: It is. And there's, there's a moment in that as well, which again, I think this comes down to how Kaluya sells this. <sighs> it, when she starts talking about his, uh, his experience when he, his mum was hit. And she's told him to let her know when he's he's got that that hook that she's then going to kind of hang him on. And he doesn't say, I don't want to talk about that. He says, I don't want to think about that. He is honest with her in a way that basically shows her she's got him. It's such a subtle thing, but I loved it. Mm -hmm.
8: Yeah, I, I didn't pick pick up that, just that subtle variation of word choice mm-hmm. means a, it has a total uh, different uh, action.
3: What about your mother?
1: What about her? Wait, are we...
3: Where were you when she died? I don't
10: want to think about that.
1: so scared <sighs> you think it was your fault how do you feel now I can't move you can't move why can' I move you're paralyzed just like that day when you did nothing you did not think Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink.
0: Peel piles on the pressure throughout betrayal after betrayal, and some of them hurt a lot more than others. With Missy, you're slightly more guarded the first time you uh, uh, see her, because I think she kind of shows her hand way earlier and then after that you're in this please say not this person's in on it please say not this person's in on it jeremy you like you're you're fairly certain <laughs> this guy's a wrongen uh but oh. dean you really want to believe is not and you could almost like hold it until the the auction then when he's doing the silent bingo auction he's like doing the it's it's again can't say bone shelling enough but the whole you know like that throwing up his uh, fingers to to indicate price it's a slave auction. And at that point, you're like, no, no, fuck this. Jordan Peele originally wanted to show that Rose was in on it way earlier. And instead, he decided to try to accomplish the impossible, which is to hide his hand on that. And he deliberately inverted a couple of scenes. There was the one where Chris was originally freaking out in the first version of the script. Okay. And she has to sort of say, no, it's okay. They're just my family, da 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 he switched that round so that she's freaking out going I can't believe my dad said this this and this and the oh. whole you know the craziness with Walter you know this is just it's, yeah. it's just so angry on your behalf so he then is in a position of having to talk her down from being angry about it mm-hmm. she's so hyper manipulative the whole way through when he says he's just going to leave she sort of turns away from him in a kind of I can't believe you'd leave my family and like you know she's heartbroken because she's projecting to him but this is a rejection of my family and thus a rejection of the our long-term standing and she just knows exactly how to play him and one of the things they cut was where she mentioned that her mother used to help her with hypnosis for her stage fright from this we can gather that she was an actor when she was younger And that thus tells us she's got all of these incredible skills at acting and she'd never get stage fright because of her hypnotic suggestion. So after planting pictorial evidence just in the hope Chris would find it, sadistically revealing her deception to him, but still leaving Chris and us unsure of how involved in this she is on a personal level. Is she being controlled somehow? Because, as far as we're concerned, Georgina and Walter are being controlled. And poor Andre that we met at the beginning, who's going around calling himself Logan now. What's going on? So when she delivers the coup de grace on the stairs and says...
10: You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe?
0: And it's not that she says it. It's the way she says it. The change in her facial expression. She becomes a different person. The whole audience goes,
4: Fucking No! (laughs) Yeah, on here. It, it, was, it
0: was.
4: It was what it was supposed to be. From what I know, um, what Jordan Peele talked about this movie is supposed to be the kind of uh, subversion of the one ally you have in the room is going to be the person who's the closest to you, your lover. Yeah, and then when that happens, I remember the whole audience going "fuck" <laughs> or making some sort of uh, some sort of loud, loud gesture. Of, no, it was like going, "Okay, please let this be." Everyone basically is, like, against him, against him, against him, against him, against him. and he's, he's got to be trapped. He can't be trapped. He's got to leave. He's got to leave. And when she turns around, does literally all my friends just went, shit!
7: Well, <laughs> 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 it's that sense that it closes the circle at that point. you so scared for chris he's so surrounded mm. by everybody he's got violence on every side you know he's got the blunt force violence of jeremy behind him between him and the door yeah.
0: effectively you've got that you've got walter running around the yard over and over again yeah. trying to <laughs> trying to beat jesse owens time
7: still um <laughs> you've got the, the that surgical institutional violence that dean represents yeah. Um, you've got the uh, psychological uh, the violence psychological from Missy. violence from Missy exactly that that manipulation that she represents that Rose has imitated to a point and yeah. then you get Rose coming in with that deceptive violence as well and it just it's Again that sense of him being so so trapped like you said Akila that's what's so terrifying about it that he's he's being closed in on and he's already been told there isn't another house for miles the only people around here are in on this
0: the support gets stripped away yeah uh we're not going to talk about us but i i did notice it in us that he was very careful to set up this person can do this this person can do this so that when it then happens there's no one saying um why did this person suddenly develop the skills and and then later you've got uh, uh walter and georgina the, the gardener and the what housemaid
7: Housekeeper.
0: Housekeeper. Or at least the grandparents posing as them. And not well, I might add, Georgina's crap at (laughs) serving. Because like, I'm assuming she's like, well, I've never served before in my life. I don't know how to pour iced tea. And so she's... And
7: I'm not going to start now. Yeah.
0: like Honestly, I said to Sharon, like, uh, a sequel to Get Out, just the same film again, but you get to see everyone behind the scenes going, right, positions, positions. You're a maid. And there's so much... Tension between Missy and Georgina, like, like I hate you, you know, just spoken between gritted teeth, and it's almost like Missy was just kind of getting used to the idea that maybe at some point the grandma was going to die and she'd be rid of her, but no, like they're they're immortal now, so they're stuck together. But you want because th- that's where your uh, uh, sympathies lie. You want these people who seem to be captives to be freed by our hero, Chris. Like, you go in to the film, you're like, I see what they're doing here, and Chris is going to be able to, like, liberate, and this is going to be a good thing. And then when it turns out what it actually is, all your assumptions get trampled on in the best way possible. You see
4: all these signs of what's going on, and you're kind of just waiting for the moment until he's a captive. Do you realise, hey, these people are just captives to a host...
0: Yeah. By the way, some fan bloody-tastic acting, especially from Betty Gabriel as uh, Georgina. She was in The Purge uh, election year, and uh, she's she's playing such a wildly different character here. Again, same as Daniel Kaluuya plays a completely different character, Wakabi, in Black Panther, and then a completely different character again in Widows. She also has range, but the scene where she's uh, uh, sort of like trying to confront him and say, "Yeah, your telephonic device—that was me. I was clearing that up." And she's the grandma there, and you can see the original Georgina struggling and straining behind her eyes at one point, and just like she's like blinking back, and then that tear comes out. Same as with Logan after the flash happens. Andre struggles towards the surface, and his nose bleeds. And it's just like, that's the person coming through. And that's one of the most horrific aspects of this. The idea that these people are captives and passengers inside their own bodies. <sighs> I do it's so horrible, they almost can't make a joke out, out of it. Mm. They just have to kind of say this is the thing and then move on.
7: Well, it's, it's yeah, there is no humour in that. Yeah. But I do think that there is a symbolism in that as well. Yeah. Chris is also trapped by his own trauma. Yeah. The trauma that has, has nothing to do with the specific situation that he finds himself in now. The trauma of being a little boy whose mum got hit by a car and he couldn't do anything. Hmm. And he's, that's another layer of
3: what he's contained by. Hmm. Hello. hi. I owe you an apology. How rude of me to have touched your belongings without asking.
2: Oh no, it's cool. I
1: was just confused.
3: Well, I can assure you there was no funny business. Allow me to explain. I lifted your cellular phone to wipe down the dresser. And it accidentally came undone.
6: Yeah, I, I rather told... than
3: meddle with it further. I left it that way. How foolish of me.
2: It's fine. I wasn't trying to snitch. Snitch? Rat you out. Tattletail. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Oh, don't you worry about that. I can assure you, I don't answer to anyone.
2: Right. All I know is sometimes, There's too many white people I get nervous, you know? <laughs>
3: oh, no. Oh, no. No. No, 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 no. Aren't you something that's not my experience? Not at all. The Armitages are so good to us. They treat us like family.
0: Peel described Rose as actually being two characters, and she's his favourite as a result. So who is Rose really? And I suppose the next question is, who is Roro? Roro.
8: I definitely would like to think that... uh roro is the the real rose the real character um uh i think um when you see uh towards the end when uh when she's speaking to rod and rod's trying to find out what happened to chris and you know she's she's trying to play she's trying to play him and once she she picks up like really quick that rod's not going for it the same way that like Chris with you know, Chris would hmm. fall for her um her wilds or whatever. So once she realizes Rod doesn't, you know, Rod's not going for it, she just she just snaps out of it and it's just like, Okay, well look, he, look, you you just need to stop this right now. Uh later after uh Chris's killed the rest of the family and you see that that scene of her just sitting there on her bed looking for her her next target because she doesn't she doesn't know what happened to the rest of them yet at the end with her um with her death after the real walter manages to get through enough to shoot her Mm -hmm. even then in the last you know her last possible moments uh she she tries to bring forth rose again to try to tempt chris and to uh, draw down his defenses again. Um, That's some I Evil think, right, Dead shit, right there. By yes. the way,
4: yeah, <laughs>
8: yeah. Roro is—I say—I believe Roro is the the real uh, the real character, um, a conniving, manipulative uh, hmm. individual.
4: Hmm. Um, from what its position in that scene, when she's listening to some sort of bubblegum pop while she's looking at Annette's some sort of
0: bubblegum pop—that's time of my life from Dirty Dancing.
4: Yeah, if, but it's also like it's a it's not so much bubblegum pop. It's very much a it's, time. It's and pop, hop.
0: most definitely. It's, it's but it, it's a cultural touchstone if you're about forty.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember Dirty Dancing all too well. Ah, there you go. <laughs> But uh, it's more that it's obvious that Rose is the front of what of what um, Rose is supposed to be portrayed as this person who's very much a capable adult. Yeah. And Roro is this version has almost been suspended in time. Mm -hmm. and is the girl who hasn't grown up
0: and she's eating kids cereal like my favorite cereal but that is kids cereal yeah
4: (laughs) yeah she's the girl who's like a teenager and hasn't quite learned the lessons of Mm -hmm. not being manipulative and that's how she can get away with being
7: super evil yeah
0: I'm worried actually, because I listen to music from 1989 and I eat Fruit Loops.
7: But you put milk on them.
0: Yes, actually, that's all <laughs> right. Then. That's all right. Sorry, Dirty Dancing is 1987. God, I feel old. That was what all the girls at my school discos loved. The time of my life. Wig, wham, bam, by the Sweet. <laughs> And Love is Strange, also from Dirty Dancing. Jesus Christ, because of the passage of time, all of these songs are now creepy as fuck! Sylvia! Yes, Mickey? How do you call your lover boy?
1: Come here, lover boy!
10: And if he doesn't answer?
1: Oh, lover
3: boy! And if he still
0: doesn't answer?
3: I simply say...
0: It's not like I have Dirty Dancing on Blu ray or anything. Actually, no, it still holds up. Pretty Woman, even more. And Ghost, we might actually do a show on. Also, uh, regarding the reveal, the the way that Peel phrased it uh, if you could actually somehow pull off some Kaiser Sose shit, why wouldn't you pull off some Kaiser Sose shit? (laughs) (laughs) Very quick one, by the way, because this one actually passed me by the first. I I got it, but I just didn't realize the breadth of quite how important this was For, for everyone who may only have seen it once. Who was Roman Armitage really? And what was his 81 year old beef with black people?
7: I think it was just a, an old-timey version of what Jeremy has right now. Deep-seated anxiety and, and insecurity yeah. and projecting that out as a ridiculous level of envy.
0: He's a chip off the oldest block. Mm.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, he was a, a wide athlete, uh, competed uh, against Jesse Owens during the 1936 Berlin Olympics. But he turned his loss, he fixated on that his whole life and then turned that into a crazy plan. And it's Peel's take on Frankenstein, at least the creation of the monster side of things, and you could definitely argue that us carries the life of the monster element of Frankenstein forwards. However, I kind of like the fact that the actual procedure, when you boil it down, is like a cartoon. Mm. It's like, right, it, anyone who's ever seen the film The Man With Two Brains, like a 1982 comedy with Sir, uh, Steve Martin, will be familiar with the cranial screw top method, where he just literally sort of cuts a line around the skull and then just unscrews your head like a jar, pulls out the brain and switches it. It's, it's just, it's ludicrous, and it's kind of better that it's ludicrous.
2: Mets and Bomb scissors. Mets and bombs, scissors. Get
0: that cat out of here. Yes, sir.
2: never seen so many brains out of their heads before. You're <laughs> like a kid in
0: a candy store. There's yeah. a couple of things. Again, I can't really talk about us. But us is very deeply symbolic. It's so much more about what it's about than about just the events that go on in it. And there's one or two things... I'll just say now, but I won't include this in the uh, show. Ice
5: Cube, take the motherfucking stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help your black ass? you got jam right. Won't you tell everybody what the fuck you gotta say?
0: And, and the uh, single...
5: The
7: fuck, fuck,
5: fuck the fuck, fuck, fuck.
0: These things defy physics and reason so much that it's almost Jordan Peele saying... Don't think about this too hard. It's not about what's going on, it's about what it's about. It's it's almost defying those stupid explained videos on YouTube that just take everything very, very literally. He basically flux capacitors like everything. Yeah. We don't we don't know why why the flux
8: capacitor works with the DeLorean. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It just does.
7: Mm. Yeah, Doc it's... knows how it works, that's the important part.
4: Well, <laughs> it, yeah, it's just a thing that's there, and you don't need
0: to explain it. It's a yeah. movie. Just don't worry about that. Well, they c- he could even, like, make it mysterious and going, what goes on in the red room, and the thing that we do here, this will uh, transplant your thoughts into this person's head, and they never explain it. Like in Inception, they never explain the contraption that gets you into someone's dreams. It all looks very technical, and you just kind of take it at face value. It works. But, like, it's very clear that what's going to happen is... <laughs> And it's just, it's it's silly in in the, in the way that that's put across. And it's like, okay, so that's how they're doing it. Focus on actually what's happening here. What does this mean? I love that.
7: There is also, uh, and this, right, this may just be me. So if, if none of you got this, then that's fine. But one thing that occurred to me was that Rod is an external brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: Chris's phone acts as like a... Connector. Uh, an external portal to rod who then provides him with external memory um there's a there's a scene external
0: suspicion which he uh, needed to act upon. absolutely
7: yeah there's a scene where rod goes to chris's apartment and there's this brilliant frame, and I made you pause it so I could yeah. write down everything that was in it. But you've got Rod sitting on the sofa, and he's got the laptop, which is external memory.
0: The lap dog. The
7: dog <laughs> is there, which is intuition, which Chris has been obliged to suppress his own intuition.
0: We could be reading too much into this, folks, but like, so much of what Jordan Peele does is laden with meaning that it's it's not that risky over-interpreting.
7: Also, reading too much into things is kind of my thing. It's our wheelhouse. It's our thing, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah, continue. Um, so, yeah, and then you've got the the camera is in the, fro- the foreground of the shot. On the and left. And that is the kind of the external eye that Chris has already been using cameras mm. to kind of see things differently and bring a different perspective to bear. You've also the got his
0: photographs on the walls mounted. Yeah, there's, so. there's uh, images in the
7: background which are like, this is him. Observation. This is who he really is. Um, and then you've got the little figure of Skeletor over on the side.
0: Riding a monster truck. Yeah. Which and you the whole thing about is, that. Is, has, has been swapped for another arm.
7: Yeah, in terms of him being ridden by somebody else, yeah. or driven by someone else. But for me, it was kind of that represented his child self. This traumatised child self who needs to be freed up and Rod is the one who's going to help him do that. And this is where Rod's role as the detective comes into play. And without that without that network of external support which is the complete antithesis of that I don't want to say prehistoric because that's not quite what I mean but that that old-timey wealthy white survivalist we live here out in the middle of nowhere and no one gets in and no one gets out and we do things exactly the way we want to that is totally antithetical to a a modern, we're all connected and we all help and support each other. And what gaps we have in our experience and our perception because of trauma or because of just lack of experience, other people in our network, in this case Rod, bring to the game to help us, to support us.
6: Is there anything more beautiful than a sunrise? You have been chosen because of the physical advantages you've enjoyed your entire lifetime. With your natural gifts and our determination, we could both be part of something greater, something perfect. The Coagula Procedure is a man-made miracle. Our order has been developing it for many, many years. And it wasn't until recently it was perfected by my own flesh and blood. My family and I are honored to offer it as a service to members of our group. Don't waste your strength, don't try to fight it. You can't stop the inevitable. And who knows, maybe one day you'll enjoy being members of the family.
0: So now I guess we get we get to talk about the grim as fuck, what it's actually about, uh, that you get down to it. Even if uh, the uh, mo- manner in which uh, it is uh, conveyed to us is, is done with an amusing uh, bent, this whole scenario, this whole film is depicting a modern form of slavery. In that, your will is taken and your body is used. And there are, and this is, I'm going to quote Peel here on this, um, a lot of different characters give multiple different reasons for it to be black people, uh, that they, you know, they bring multiple things, that there's people admiring Chris's skin, they admire his strength, they admire his skill, even if it's skill that they imagine he has, even if he doesn't bloody have it. They admire his culture, and this is what, Peel is pointing out, you are not respected as people for your souls. You are seen only as the symbolic version of what you're assumed to be. And there is, of course, a broader, far more insidious, a lot less exotic series of cultural issues that he's addressing with this. What is he? What does it mean contextually? I think
4: the phrase I actually heard someone talking about this movie, they are literally gentrifying chris's body they're literally taking something if you think about gentrification in any way shape or form essentially it's about beautiful area area that has some quality to it you kind of reconstruct it make it better and then it gets taken over away from the people most likely minorities Mm. Are coming in. Are coming in to take that property, and it's no longer the same as it used to be. Even though they think it's the same, and they think it's it's the way they want it to be, it takes away all the all the mystique, all the essence, all the actual character of the area. So in this case, it's a literal metaphor of someone being gentrified, someone taking all the skeleton and then taking the soul straight out of it or putting it way, 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 way back. And it's a long, in my activism circle, it's a big old narrative in terms of colonialism, in terms of anything where it's like, oh, look at this cool thing, let's use it. And all of a sudden you just find it's kind of a, she- a shell of its former self. So it's all about using, in this particular case, black bodies, for a different end than other than just being themselves Mm.
0: eric do you want to add to this one
8: the gentrification analogy definitely works because when um i was going through um, my second viewing in order to start gentrification you have to have you have to have assets in order to you know in order to start money wealth power and i think peel is great for symbolizing this the start of the whole process of taking someone over starts with Missy and her hypnosis. And the key item that she uses is a silver spoon. Um, oh, which, oh,
7: yeah. wow.
8: Yep. The, the silver spoon, which is the one, which is the one thing that a lot of people that some people have that others do not. Chris doesn't have a silver spoon. So, He can't control what happens to him. People who do have a silver spoon, they can. Um, And so she taps that spoon on that glass and the person is out and the person is out and therefore starting the the gentrification process.
4: And of course, it's bone china. So it's this whole totem is essentially it's a symbol of wealth Mm. Mm -hmm.
7: and colonization.
8: Plus the fact that, you know, she's drinking tea. And a lot of the you know a, you know a lot of the slave trade revolved around tea and sugar and, and all of that as well. So each time I've watched it, God knows Peel's symbolism, I, I don't find anything in this that doesn't that doesn't not mean something.
0: Mm. Yeah, he uh, it's so fucking dense that like I said, the the idea of us trying to cover us now is ludicrous. Yeah. We need to yeah. study. <laughs> mm. yeah. And we need to listen to as much of, as we can uh, to, to, to what he has to say about it. There's so many other permutations as well. It, it, African-American art, African-American music has been taken. They took jazz, they turned it into rock and roll. They took dance, fashion, food, dominating sport, blues, soul, funk, disco, R&B, rap, hip-hop. They, their first fucking thing they did in 1990 they're like oh, a lot of this hip hop what are we going to do, we need a white rapper, okay Vanilla Ice <laughs> Ice, ice. Alright stop, collaborate and listen, listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention It's not your invention Vanilla you stole under pressure from Queen and then you did one third of Run DMC on your own with a bunch of dancing waiters they even had the temerity to attempt to steal reggae with snow Informer, you know, so that I'm so much of hip hop culture sort of has worked its way into white culture and so they, we, I even use it to feel more connected in some way. And there's this sense of just stuff being stolen and taken and co-opted and co-modified created by people of color taken by powerful white men to make the most possible money from it. There's a Chris Rock uh, routine where he talks about the difference between wealth and rich.
5: Nah, man, the government, they will never legalize drugs in America. Okay, the first reason they will never legalize drugs in America is because the government makes way too much money putting our brothers and sisters in fucking jail, okay? That's first of all, okay? For bullshit. Bullshit. The second reason the government will never legalize drugs in America is because, you know, God forbid some brown people got wealthy. Can't have that. Because drugs come from brown countries. We can't have wealthy brown people. There are no wealthy black or brown people in America. We got some rich ones. We don't got no fucking wealth. People go, what's the difference? Here's the difference. Shaq is rich. The white man that signs his check is wealthy. (laughs) Ah, here you go, Shaq. Go buy yourself a bouncing car. (laughs) Bling bling! (laughs) I'm not talking about rich. I'm talking about wealth, okay? I'm talking about the white family that owns all the fucking Similac. Those rich motherfuckers, okay? I'm talking about the white family that owns the color blue. Those rich bastards, okay? I ain't talking about Oprah. I'm talking about Bill Gates, okay? If Bill Gates woke up tomorrow with Oprah's money, he'd jump out a fucking window. He'd slit his throat on the way down. Ah, shit. I can't even put gas in my plane. I'm not talking about rich. I'm talking about wealth. Because wealth will set us fucking free, okay? Because wealth is empowering. Wealth can uplift communities from poverty, okay? A white man gets wealthy, he builds Walmarts and makes other white people have some motherfucking money. A brother gets rich, he buys some motherfucking jewelry, okay? Do you know what the fuck I'm talking about? I ain't talking about rich. I'm talking about wealth wealth is passed out from generation to generation you can't get rid of wealth rich is some shit you can lose with a crazy sum and a drug habit <laughs> fuck rick james was rich <laughs> one minute you're singing super freak the next minute you're doing old neighbor commercials <laughs> give it to me baby give me corduroy.
4: It is all about agency at the end of the day and essentially breaking the system as it is.
7: One um, facet of that, the whole why black people question, which feels like a really basic reading of it now, but the fact that this particular group of people are already used to suspending their empathy for black people... You know, the, if if all they're interested in is is physical strength, they could, or, or youth, or something like that. There's there's many people that they could choose, but there is a degree of psychological trammeling that they would have to do to themselves to effectively kidnap and abuse people who look like them, and that othering. That's mm-hmm. why that is so insidious and so dangerous because if you're used to treating somebody and thinking of somebody who doesn't look like you as being less than then that opens the door to all sorts of of cruelties and unacceptable behaviors and I and it just it made me feel like that that othering is something that we need to really recognise and tackle in ourselves when we do it. Because we do. To a degree, many, many people do it. And you got to get on that shit.
4: It's, essentially, it's been the same as it has been for a long time. It's all about someone who has power pushing somebody down into a second class and that second class all their agency and power being stripped away. Mm. This is literally a cycle that's been going on for thousands of years. Mm.
8: I I think for me that that's also why um, when, during the scene where Chris meets Jim Hudson and I think that's, that scene in in the midst of a movie that, you know, where every time he, Chris is portrayed, you just feel it. I think that one, is one that kind of really stuck with me because here he's going throughout this whole party and he actually meets one person that appears to respect what he's capable of and chris knows this man and knows what a big deal he is in the art community and then when he's uh in the um the room waiting to get operated on and Hudson tells it, you know. Hudson tells him he was like, "Well, listen, I'm like, don't lump me in with uh, the rest of them. I really don't care what color you are. Uh, I just want your. He's like, I just want your eyes. It's like, man. Even instead of he instead of respecting Chris's his his talent, the technical skills that he's good at with his photography, in addition to his experiences, which what allows him to use his technical talents to properly capture, you know, whatever the picture is he's looking for." He doesn't respect any of that at all. He just sees the technical portion of it, and it's like, and it's just, well, I'm just taking this. Like I said I said earlier, I, I work in corporate America. I see it all the time. People work their ass off at what their job is, and then they think it's time to, you know, they think it's time they're finally going to get rewarded. And, oh, no, I'm just going to use you. To, I'm going to use you who's really good at your job to train this idiot who doesn't know anything, and then they're going to take your
0: job. And then you're
8: going to be out of a job. and so. <sighs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah. We see with our souls. If you're a photographer, the reason you can capture something that's beautiful is because it resonates with what you've learned, with what you've accumulated in your experience. You compare and contrast it with how it makes you feel. The eyes are jelly. <laughs> you fucking idiot um the thing that takes really really good pictures will be relegated to a back room in his own mind <laughs> stuck in the sunken place forever while you use his jelly eyes to take exactly the same kind of photos you were taking before you're abs- yeah, that was yeah. you eric you you made that point absolutely perfectly and the um to to, to cap it off with you know i don't see color <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. what the fuck do you want for that <laughs> uh,
8: you're, like, oh, you're just going you're just going to you know you don't, you don't see colour you're just going to take over my body and you know yeah.
0: whatever that's turning that's, a blind like, eye to absolute tyranny you're just yeah. as bad yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're, you're absolutely complicit in this tyranny you're lining the pockets of the tyrants you're benefiting from it It doesn't matter whether you're prejudiced or not, you're a tyrant under those circumstances.
3: Mm. That,
7: I think, is is one reason why I really like the fact that Peel doesn't give any of these guys a soapbox, really, to to sort of explain why they're doing any of this.
0: Shouldn't we debate them in the House of Ideas?
1: No! No, we should
7: not!
1: (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Since we're already doing soapbox via stand up, uh, here's a bit from Amer Rahman, an Australian stand up comedian of Bangladeshi descent.
2: Uh, and it all started, you know, it all started with that stupid Richard Spencer article, like near the end of last year, right? It was like, oh, look, look at this dapper Nazi who doesn't dress the way we thought he would. <laughs> here's an in depth interview where he gets to hear all of his fucked up ideas in a mainstream media outlet, which then led to more interviews with other Nazis in mainstream media outlets. Mm-hmm. And then Richard Spencer got punched in the face, right? Which was an amazing moment in comedy history. Because, I don't know if you know, Richard Spencer was being interviewed and in the interview he was asked about his Pepe the Frog badge. So he was trying to explain a meme and then out of nowhere a hero came along and punched him in the face, instantly turning him into a meme. It's like casting a spell. And then every white liberal came out of the woodwork going, "Mm, I don't know, I don't know. that's what we should be doing, should we really be applauding someone for punching a Nazi? Is that how we want to have political conversations? Shouldn't we hear people out? If you punch a Nazi, it doesn't make you as bad as one. You know what we should do with Nazis? We should debate them, and we should defeat them in the marketplace of ideas. I don't really know where that is. Uh, I would like to defeat Nazis on planet Earth first. And then after we eradicate them here, you can fight them in the marketplace of ideas, fucking Narnia, Mordor, whatever, whatever imaginary realm it is that you think Nazis can be constructively defeated. Go for it, right? People get very upset. Oh, do oh, you support political violence? Do you want me to support political I oh, Just slow down, okay? Do I support political violence? We're talking about punching fascists in the face, not suicide bombing, okay? Relax. Do I, why do I support political Why the fuck are you a volunteer Nazi safety advocate is my question. <laughs> That's a funny thing to be concerned about, the well-being of hypothetical Nazis. Well, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide who gets punched in the face? If you punch a Nazi, who's next? Hopefully more Nazis. why Why would you only punch one? That doesn't seem right.
0: Moving on from the fucking grimmest but most important and and serious aspect of this to the specificity of what's actually going on in in the film, the doe and the stag actually are representational and uh, it's not necessarily of black people. This is personal to Chris, I believe. What
8: do they mean? The doe would specifically represent his his mother Mm -hmm. um, because when they hit the deer in the beginning, he goes out there to look for it which again is part of his process of trying to get over that paralyzation that he had yeah. as a child. And then with the with the buck, I believe, at towards the end when he knocks out Jeremy and um, gets the um, the head off the wall, uses that to kill Dean. Not necessarily becoming primal, but just him finally taking those steps to be active. Whereas yeah. where he found as a child, he was not active. So now he's taking the deer head off the wall. That's his symbol walking up Pride Rock moment. Yeah,
1: um, nice.
7: yeah. I, I think for me, with the the doe being his mother, the stag kind of felt like an internal father element, especially since... Just like Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Well, why not?
0: (laughs) Which would make that his Patronus. Yes,
7: yeah. (laughs) But... but
0: There's a deleted scene. Did you watch the bit with the deer in the sunken place? Sorry, the stag in the sunken place. I didn't see that. Okay. (laughs) When he's... It's after he's... She said...
10: You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe?
0: And um, Missy floors him, and he sinks backwards, and he's just going, ah... He pulls out a lighter, and he's just kind of suspended on wires and just sort of hanging down. It's not the best effects. And, and he starts, like, flicking the lighter, which there's a, it's a weird companion piece to the uh, the lighter play in Us. Uh, but this stag skeleton starts getting closer, and, like, he can't see it. And he's going flick, and then it's there, flick, and then it's there. And it goes, nyah, at the end. And it's like a puppet skeleton. And it's a little bit silly. And I'm glad they took it out but Jordan Peele equated that with his absent father and there's a subtext throughout the whole film of uh, black men just disappearing just that his uh, his father was taken and just wasn't there for his childhood there's the, the subtext of far too many black men stuck in jail with far less hope of reprieve than anyone else and um, if that makes the stag his father then Grabbing it and using that as a weapon is exactly as you say uh, eric it's his uh, it 's him becoming Mufasa stepping up to Pride Rock and going, right, this is my totemic uh, ability going to use it to stab you now yeah that's a that 's a deeply satisfying moment for me the doe as you say uh, being his mother um, when that first happened, there was another deleted scene where he immediately called the cops, and if you remember the cops uh, uh, saying, you know next time call uh, animal services, that bit was in the film because Chris immediately phoned and from the sounds of it, Rose was trying to stop him calling the cops. So then as soon as the cop asked to see his ID, she's like, Oh shit, that's going to create a paper trail. So she manipulatively just sweeps in to defend him, which it accomplishes two things. First off, it makes Rose more conniving when you've seen it the first time. And, when you're watching it for the first time, you're more allied with her because you're like, well, this girl's woke. She's actually defending him. She's like calling bullshit on this. So that makes you want her to be a good person all the more. And Chris is trying to, you know, he's, he's just being compliant yeah, because he knows
8: Rose is telling him, no, you don't have to give him your ID. And he's like, no, well, no, it's fine. Chris just knows the deal. You know, a lot of us have experienced it quite, uh, quite often. It's just, fruitless just go ahead and uh, do what they say mm. and yeah i didn't think i honestly didn't think of it like that but yeah it does make her far more roses actually i think what i think peel did the best overall just work with as far as just disguising yeah. um all of that
0: uh, the other thing is when he talks to her about this terrible thing that not so much even like happened to him but from his perspective he did that he through his inaction killed his mother They're in front of the woods in a very similar scenario to where the deer has fallen so it's constantly drawing you back to this just edge of the wild point that he's at and like this is key to him being able to move forwards as a person he needs to be able to step away from that with confidence so again taking up that stag head is a huge deal for him
7: i think there's a parallel there as well between wild and self yeah As in, like I said before, about he's been, through his own trauma and through people constantly questioning his instincts and through Missy's hypnotism, Chris has been gradually removed from his own self-protective instincts. Yeah. And he needs to reclaim that in order to get out of this. That, to me, is the elixir that he takes back.
0: Yeah. And uh, he ends up using... After all of that shit that uh, Jeremy laid on him about physical strength, he uses so much more than just physical strength to get out uh, and, and to take down this multitude of uh, enemies in such quick succession. I'd forgotten how many people he kills in a very short space of time. Uh, so, can anyone list them in as preferably as in, in order as possible the things that he uses and what they might also symbolize in some cases?
4: Okay, so first one, Jeremy, um, he uses some sort of billiard ball.
0: It's a bocce ball. Um, it's a bocce
4: ball um, on Jeremy to kill him. Bocce
0: ball is a ridiculously white sport. It's like the whitest old man in a polo <laughs> shirt type game you could ever get. <laughs> is, it,
7: is, it, oh. is that what he's got the stick for? Is that butchy?
0: Oh, no, that's um, – no, Bachi is basically bulls. It's just oh, chucking okay. a, a, bowl at a ball at right. a small ball okay. or towards a hoop or something like that. And, no, that's lacrosse, which is another – Which is
1: also a very, very
0: yeah. – Like, lacrosse is like it's, the white man's version of uh, American f- – of it's just a, football well, for it's you. it's a, a
7: Native American sport that they pinched.
0: Oh, that's perfect. Oh, oh. wow. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's what that stick was. But, uh, yeah, that's, so, okay, count. Uh, we've missed one bit. When he was on the chair, and uh, how does he stop himself from getting uh, hypnotized yet again this time?
8: He picks cotton. Bingo! He picks cotton to prevent himself from being enslaved.
0: I was sat watching, I can't remember which video it was, I think it was Jordan Peele answering uh, questions uh, from um, people for, for, uh, for Vanity Fair, which, by the way, have become this fantastic resource for just getting candid responses from directors and, and stars. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, he picks cotton. I went, oh, no! It's so fucking there. It's right in our faces, and yeah, he uses that in a cunning way, stuffing cotton in his ears to take away all the power of the silver spoon.
4: Um, the stag's head for um, yep.
0: Dean Patronus, and then he goes up. He goes upstairs, and it's Missy next. It's Missy, and so how does he take away her power? The spoon, the cup, the spoon. bingo! The yeah. yeah. He smashes the uh, cup, thus taking away uh, the power. Now I said. That Catherine Keener was still dominating the room, uh, Sharon, uh, to uh, uh, at the point where she's sort of like, "Oh, it's just me, a feeble old woman. Don't attack me." But uh, and and you said that that there was that she never convinced you that she was feeble; that she always looked like she was a, a cobra about to strike.
7: That's right. Well, the way she comes into the room, I think Jordan Peele said that he had to find a way to play this so it didn't look like Chris was just beating up on this.
0: Middle-aged slightly woman, feeble yeah.
7: middle-aged white woman, um, but she she comes out with a look on her face that is clearly that she's trying to convince us. I oh, I'm just an old lady. I won't hurt you. <laughs> but my gut on that is never underestimate the old lady. Yeah.
0: <laughs> she goes after him with a letter opener in the end. Oh, is um, that what oh, it is? Uh, right. I could be wrong yeah. on that, but yeah. Uh, yeah and he it ends up reversing like it, it on her. It
7: looked like it could be scissors. Yeah. Because she, yeah. you only ever see the blade, don't you? Keira? Mm. Mm. She, but she uses it on him first, specifically. She yeah, puts it through his hand. Right,
0: through his hand. And he has to endure the pain in order to Get turn it, it around her. on her. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, specifically the important thing is that he destroys her totem first because he's using his brain. And uh, he could have gone for the whole, "aha, I've still got these things in my ears again, but it just would have been uh, repetition on that one great get-out clause. Uh, and then when he fights Jeremy... Do you remember what Jeremy said about um, uh, why jiu-jitsu is so much better than judo? Because he has to stay three moves ahead or something like that. It's like chess. And and how does he actually end up uh, beating Jeremy and it's not just through pure strength?
8: He saw he was kicking the door shut. Bingo. he, yeah, I didn't know if it was the le- if it was if he still had the letter opener or if he just ripped the knob out. I just know he pulled out something. Nah, it's the it's, the, door it's the
0: letter opener. Exactly. He's got it in his oh, hand, okay. and uh, it's the it's the power of th- like. First off, this fucker's going one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi while he's trying to headlock him. So it just brings our attention to the number three. He goes for the, the door, and um, oh shit! Yeah. Oh my god! As Eric just said, it's like a noose. He go, uh, Chris goes for the door, Jeremy kicks it once. Chris goes for the door again, Jeremy kicks it twice, and this time Chris has been observing uh, that every time he goes for the door, Jeremy kicks it. So uh, Chris is about to pass out, and then he just sort of gets a, uh, redoubles a bit of strength, and he's kind of like fainting here. He goes towards the door a third time, knowing the leg's coming out to kick it, and knows exactly where to plant that fucking letter opener. I'm literally smiling with glee here, just <laughs> thinking, just thinking about it. And and then he stomps his head in. I don't think that's necessarily particularly symbolic, but it's so fucking groovy with the sound. And
7: incredibly satisfying at that point. Oh,
0: yeah, again. Yeah. Like, they they don't make these guys really all that sympathetic at all. Mm. I can't think of uh, any moment that I'm like, oh, that was a bit harsh. No. Fuck them. None of
7: this is... is And
0: actually thinking about it, like, he never addresses Jim, uh, because, like, Jim's on the table with his brain out.
7: (laughs) (laughs) He's done (laughs) (laughs)
0: And you put it out regarding their downfall?
7: Yeah, right. They plant the seeds of their own destruction here, right? This is totally deserved. Because the fact that this is for them, this ridiculously ritualised, religious mimicking order, and the fact that they've set up this environment where they have a surgery room with candles in it. (laughs) What on earth? Right, okay, if that was a a fluorescent lit, Clean room. Now, I'm not saying you guys would be fine, but the whole house wouldn't end up getting burned down and everybody crispy critted. But because, oh, no, 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 you had to have everything look like the flipping yeah. uh, Templar Knights.
0: Well, that's why he's got the, the Knights helmet at the beginning. Absolutely. Jeremy's wearing that's, this.
7: That's the thing. Because they surround themselves with this ridiculous tradition, yeah. it's their own.
0: Peel had this whole subtext of, of uh, or, or backstory of that these guys are like the latest in a long line of Templars. They call themselves the Red Alchemists. It's all a bunch of like yeah, um like deep deep lore on this mm. that uh, I would love to uh, 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 talk to. And actually, no, I wouldn't because it's all conspiracy theory <laughs> bullshit. And all you have to say is they're Templars, and they go, oh, those guys.
7: What is it? What is it? They call the procedure the coagula.
0: The coagula. Yeah, yeah. which
7: is all about blood.
0: Yeah. Coagulation. I think he's talking about it being a chrysalis, mm. and the idea that you you come out of your caterpillar like shriveled old white body, and you end up this beautiful black butterfly. And uh, it's mm. he starts that film off, which was very much inspired by the whole Dharma Initiative thing in uh, Lost. This sort of like um ancient 70s style uh, uh, video production. Uh, actually, I suppose it would have to be later than that because of the Age of Rose. The extremely talented Alison Williams was born in 1988, so maybe 1994? She looks about six there. But he starts off saying, is there nothing more beautiful than a sunrise? And we've said on this show over and over again, this is about the non-acceptance of death. The only thing that is comparable in beauty to a sunrise is a...
7: Sunset?
0: Yes, the acceptance that that is the way of things. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. It's just this nice little showing thing of, I just want as many sunrises as I can possibly get. (laughs) I'm just going to keep on living, man. Thank you, Matthew McConaughey.
7: Also, speaking (laughs) of of Rose and her relative age... Was anybody else really creeped out by the fact that when Chris talks to Walter, he's talking about roses? Oh, isn't she just... I can't remember his exact words. He says, top of the line. Isn't she just a firecracker? That's A
0: real doggone keeper?
7: keeper. Dude, (laughs) that's your granddaughter. You are disgusting.
0: Yeah, he's a creep and a half <laughs> also um i love the that georgina uses uh, in, uh, georgina being like sh- this, this woman's like 29 years old and he says i'm sorry for snitching and she goes snitch and then thinks and what's her translation in old white lady speech tattletale, tattletale. <laughs> tattletale. it's so out of place and that is only matched by when he goes to shake... He goes to fist bump Logan, just like sort of... Yeah, okay, so you've just been totally weird, but just at least give me a little bit of... Solidarity. A little of solidarity here. And Logan just grabs his hand, like, with his great, great big... Yes, this is what people do, right?
1: How do you do, fellow kids? What?
0: <laughs> okay, so we were at the point of him getting out of the house, so... He gets out, runs over Georgina. As you said, he goes back to get her. And there's that sort of moment, like we've been spending the whole film going, get out, get out, go, 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 go. And they stretch it as far as they possibly can. And there's no reason he should go back for her. But the way Kaluya plays it, he knows it's going to be a trap or he knows that she's probably just going to be grandma. But there's still that part of him that wants to to, to set the original Georgina free. And he's like, well, maybe if I just go back and... I can't just leave her lying there. You know, he he can't not act, which makes me think of Spider-Man.
9: Look, when you can do the things that I can, but you don't, and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you.
6: So you want to look out for the little guy, you want to do your part, make the world a better place on that, right?
9: Yeah, 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 just looking out for the little guy.
0: Chris has kind of got like a superpower of just not being able to stand by where someone is suffering. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently opened up to Vanity Fair again. I don't know how they get all these scoops about the pressures that come with the spotlight. It's really hard to communicate that I'm just a normal person doing her best. I'm not a superhero. I'm not a villain. I'm just a person that's trying. All the best superhero films of the past 15, 20 years now, have made it abundantly clear that it's not about having that great power, it's about taking that great responsibility. This might not be what most of the world sees it as, but as far as I'm concerned, if you're trying to be a decent person, that's a superpower, because it's more than what most people are capable of. The fact that he just doesn't leave her when he has every fucking reason to indicates his growth as a character.
8: And I say I love when he 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 actually talks to himself to is yeah. like is like ah oh, don't do it don't do it don't do it He's in the audience. Like,
0: yeah. <laughs> so then uh Walter attacks him and he has to remember the the flash and this again is his detective's eye, his ability to just see the world and just remember stuff. And again, he's using his cunning and he's remembering how this happened before. And what finally gets him out, really, is having a great friend. Because ultimately, yeah. like, we've, we've all got good friends, but how many of our friends do you think would actually come all the way out here to rescue us?
7: Well, how many of our friends are TS motherfucking A?
0: Well, that's the thing. <laughs> it takes someone like Rod to be your friend. He, he reminds me of Ron Weasley, I think. I feel like Ron would do that. <laughs>
4: Mm, he's
0: definitely got the wrong reason. in terms of he talks a lot of nonsense
4: yeah. and he tries to make things smooth but at the end of the day he's going to do the right thing
0: and Ron occasionally does like you know th- is, is like okay i work this out and then Hermione's like oh I'm, I'm amazed he's like always the turn of surprise like don't underestimate Ron Weasley but how are the police handled differently in Peel's film and this is pretty much the same in us but we can't really talk about us uh, compo- compared with traditional horror
4: the police are pretty much a non sequitur; they're not not in things at all. They don't understand at all. They're just they're not even in it. They're discussed, they're involved, but they just are absent.
0: They're certainly someone you can't rely on. Mm. Yeah,
7: and I think that's part partly down to the isolation of the location,
3: mm.
7: mm-hmm. um, which is is often used in horror films anyway especially horror films that are set in, like, middle American states where you are however many hundreds of miles from anywhere mm. useful. Um, but you've also got the, because the the seed of suspicion of how local police might behave around Chris that's set up at the beginning with mm. the cop asking for his ID when he doesn't need it, you then, when those flashing lights turn up at the end, it's like, Oh, this is not good.
0: Yeah, especially if you take into context that Peel was was uh, writing this uh, um, uh, around about the uh, uh, the time of the police protests and the uh, taking a knee. It, it became apparent that for a lot of people in America, not only could you not rely on the police, they were an oppressive, scared, dangerous presence. You
8: see that when
0: Rod. Uh goes to the police um,
8: to tell him that that his friend is missing and it ultimately just gets laughed off, literally laughed off.
0: And that's doing things by the book. That whole scene didn't even need to be in there, but he deliberately went out of his way to to put it in.
8: Yeah, that's the dismissal of when black folks are missing um, in the world, how it just doesn't ever, it's just never a big deal um, at all. It doesn't matter, man, woman, child, doesn't matter. It's never important. And then I... I think about how Peel kind of rode with that, with the, with the ending. Did anybody, everybody see the, the alternate ending? His, yeah. The, um, yeah. His original ending where it was supposed to be the, pol- the actual police arrive and Chris gets arrested. And I was thinking while yes, that would have been a very hard hitting ending. But I also think if he would have stuck with that ending, What it would have done was, I, I kind of think that end, the original ending, would have been an ending for white people to see. It's like, all right, here's what I'm trying to get to tell you that you just saw all this horrible stuff happen to this one young man, and in the end, he's still gonna go down for it, and then he changes it to Rod being the one who shows up at the end because he decided it's like, you know what. Let me give the let me let me give black people this let me give them let me give them a relief, let me give them a, a win a hero, yeah, give them a win to quote my um my favorite uh show the Wire Jimmy Mcnulty he's like he, they don't get to win, we get to win and I, that's what I love about that um that ending and how he chose to like i said we know the- rea- we know our reality, and we know that when we finish watch get out things probably are going to be as we, as they were when we before we put the movie on. But at least for that hour and uh, however long, an hour, 45 minutes, we see this uh, tragedy and we get a triumph. And I'm so grateful for that. Hmm.
0: If Get Out had been helmed by a super serious white director like Nolan, he couldn't have had Chris escape at the end with a note of comedy. Partly because that win is not his story to tell. Chris would almost certainly have been jailed or killed and the movie would then have been only about black pain and white guilt but with an entirely different alchemy than what Peel mixed together here and it may have won Best Picture.
5: What's the biggest issue in America right now? The most divisive issue in America right now is affirmative action. Now, a lot of people think affirmative action got a lot to do with the 60s and the back of the bus and separate lunch counters. No, 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 no. When you see footage of the 60s and see black people, see us getting sprayed down and hosed down and dogs getting sick on us and little girls getting burnt up in churches, that's just white people being nice. (laughs) Nicer than they was in the 50s, 40s, and 30s. Shit, there's black people that died in the 30s that was looking down from heaven in the 60s going, Man, them niggas got it good. (laughs) No, no, no. Affirmative action was put into place to offset policies that the United States government implemented during slavery that affect us today. Now, when I talk about slavery, no, no, no. When I talk about slavery, I'm just talking about a period of time where black people had no rights. So you talk about the 1600s to about 1964. <laughs> you know, give or take a year, depending on when your town decided to act right. <laughs> now people go, well, what happened during slavery that could affect us today? What happened during slavery that could affect us today? A lot of shit happened during slavery that affects us every day. For instance, during slavery, they used to take the biggest, strongest slaves and breed them and try their best to make big, strong, super slaves. Okay? That's right. That's right. And there's evidence of that today, like the NFL, for instance. That's right, NFL stands for nigger fucking large. They bred the slaves, and this is why black people dominate every physical activity in the United States of America, okay? We're only 10% of the population. We're 90% of the Final Four, okay? We fucking dominate all this shit, okay? Basketball, baseball, football, boxing, track, even golf and tennis. As soon as they make a heated hockey rink, we're gonna take that shit to them. So that's what they did to the big, strong slaves. And you know what they did to the smart ones? Or at least the ones they thought were smart? They killed them. That's what they did. That's right. That was the policy of the United States government to kill smart black people. That's right. So the real smart motherfuckers had to hide the fact that they were smart. Okay. The law of the land was if you read, you die. If you read, you fucking die. Okay. So you know what that means? The first black drug dealers didn't even sell drugs. They sold books. Yo, oh, man, I got two pages, man. I got two pages, man. Check it out, man. Check it out, man. I got two pages, man. Now, don't get me wrong with affirmative action. Don't get me wrong, man. I don't think I should get a job over a white person if I get a lower mark in the test. I don't think I should get accepted into a school over a white person if I get a lower mark in the test. But if there's a tie, fuck them. <laughs> Shit, you had a 400-year head start, motherfucker. <laughs> white man you're gonna be all right you know a lot of people say a lot of people say this shit too if you're the smartest and the brightest you won't need affirmative action we'll be able to get rid of affirmative action altogether if you just strive to be the smartest and the brightest they say that as if the whole country is run by the smartest and the brightest now i was in black schools and white schools so you can't fucking tell me shit okay (laughs) now when you go to a class there are 30 kids in a class five smart Five dumb, and the rest, they're in the middle. And that's just all America is, a nation in the middle, a nation of B and C students. That's all the fuck it is, a nation of B and C students. But let's keep it fucking real, okay? A black C student can't run no fucking company. A black C student can't even be the manager of Burger King. (laughs) Meanwhile, a white C student just happens to be the president of the United States of America. (laughs)
0: You know, there was an eight-year period when that joke seemed really dated. Doesn't anymore. Anyway, School of Movies is supported by you guys on Patreon. You keep us going. You help us pay the bills. Thank you to everyone. And our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode. So, a special thank you to... Abel Savard, Aaron Lekluse, Benjamin Biddle, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Datchler, Dan Mayer, Dave Hickman, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joseph Gluck, Kat Esman, Kevin Otero, Lorraine Chisham, Luke Hatfield, Mark Lush, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasko, Nick Ord, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, and Tom Painter. Before we round up, any last things you noticed?
7: One tiny line for me, and it's it really is a tiny thing, um, but when Dean is talking to Chris about the fact that they have black help, he says that they hired Georgina and Walter to take care of his parents in their final days, and then he says, when they died, I couldn't bear to let them go. I hate the way it looks. It sounds as though he's talking about Georgina and Walter. Yeah. He's not. He's talking mm. about his mum and dad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he also says, uh, you know, oh, oh uh, my, my mom loved this kitchen, so we kept a piece of her in it. And the camera closes on Georgina smiling, Stepford wife style. Mm. <laughs> and the,
4: the constant my man, my man, my man thing mm. was, was one of those things I was like, all right, calm down. <laughs> It's like someone. It's like if I was invited to someone who's a white person's house and they open the door, went "Wagwan." It's no, no, it's no, 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 no. No, don't do that, please.
8: Did anyone notice when when Kristen Rose arrived at the house? The little pillars or whatever have the Omega symbol symbolize the end.
0: Holy I
8: shit. I did
7: not. Yeah, I didn't the,
8: see that. No. Yeah, wow. It's a it's a it's a very far shot so it it's not and, and Peel doesn't mention it in the commentary, mm. but I just noticed it when I was watching it um this morning and yeah, and I saw it on the, the two pillars on the side of the steps um the omega symbol um, get to symbolize the the end for these people as they walk in.
0: Mm. Shit.
7: Oh, also, um, yeah. the the pillars. I was looking at it going, ooh, 11-11.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> after watching Us, I was conditioned to look for twos because there's so many pairs in Us. We'll talk about that. We're talk about Us sometime soon, hopefully. All, all it takes is for Jordan Peele to do a third film and then we're on that thing. But, uh, yeah, I was like, two chairs, then two chairs next to each other, two pillars, two pillars, and that's when Sharon pointed out eleven, eleven. It's It's... Uh, He's got a deliberate, symmetrical way of doing things uh, to be unnerving. And one of his favourite directors is uh, Kubrick, who I would actually position as uh, one of the, like, I demand to be taken seriously. It's not like his films are without humour, but he's very much, uh, this, this film is to be studied. And I love the fact that if you listen to his commentary, Jordan Peele is this incredibly personal, real, affable, likeable, humble guy and was unabashed about that like, i'm just going to break this thing wide open and just tell you what, what as much of it means as i can in the time allowed like he'd have to keep pausing it to actually get everything compared it to the shining and said you know for after all these decades people are still puzzling out the secret hidden meanings but i'm just going to kind of tell you and while that to a degree flies in the face of the death of the author the film is deliberately pitched with myriads of of applicability for future deconstruction.
7: I also, I loved his commentary because the fact that he's about my age, I think he's about four months younger than me, means that his horror influences are so parallel with my own. Mm. And to see him taking those influences and and making what he's making with them so layered, so dense, so complex, and so so intelligent and smart is just, love it. Like I said, he's rapidly becoming one of my favourites
0: I saw an article asking which horror movie should Jordan Peele remake and the only answer to that is none of them he's really really good at doing original films why would you waste his time remaking fucking Tommyknockers just do your thing, Jordan.
7: Nobody remake Tommyknockers.
0: Oh, they will. <laughs> they're going to, especially if Pet Symmetry works out well. No! And, and
4: it looks like he might be doing that, and obviously he's involved with Twilight Zone yeah, as well. Yeah, that's mm.
0: his, definitely his, his wheelhouse, the um, the whole... Oh.
7: Yeah, didn't see that one coming. I know a lot of people refer to them as twists, but they're not exactly twists. They're just things that come out of, your, out of left field and...
0: It's sort of Knock more, ex- it's explaining the backstory to give you a new perspective.
7: Mm, yeah, he's <laughs> not shy of exposition, especially in the third act. Yeah. And it's, it takes a very deft hand to to do that without it feeling clumsy and like they couldn't find a better way of showing it.
5: There's also tales than expected with a sort of bridge of tales than expected. There's always a push. To the end of the tale. Remember that on the the end
0: of the tale. They go along there. And there were easy pieces to write because all you had to have is something unexpected happen. So, say so it was a bloke, he has a relationship with a, a woman and, uh, or his wife or whatever, and he
4: thinks his wife is seeing someone else. So, he, he goes home from work early and uh, she's at home, and, and he goes home at four o'clock and he opens the front door, and a pig eats him.
0: Totally unexpected isn't it? You could not get any letters coming in saying, "I totally predicted the pig at that point." You could see it a mile off, matey. Don't you put one over on me? No, no way, Piggy Wiggy. So, where can people find your stuff? We'll start with Eric. You can follow me
8: on Twitter. I'm at Deacon zero five O C. You can also check out uh, my podcast the essentials my co-host jake allman you can follow that uh, also on twitter at wc the essentials uh, we talk star trek batman the animated series and buffy the vampire slayer so three di- very different type of shows that we uh, talk about and one thing i'm hopefully working on in the future is to hopefully begin a uh, podcast with my wife jessica where we talk about the TV show Westworld
0: if you're that's something uh, people are interested in sweet okay and uh, Aquila
4: okay you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Aquila underscore hope so H-E-U-I-L-A underscore hope H-O-P-E so there you'll generally see me talking about politics activism and bits and pieces of music which i'm working on um, that's probably the best places you can find me
8: is, is it cool for just for a moment i just want to um yeah. touch on the the music um oh, the, yeah. the the score by michael abels and mm-hmm. in the commentary peel mentions how he's um was uh jazz trained classical trained um trained in tribal music and that he wanted he wanted a, a new type of sound he described it as black sinister but mm-hmm not voodoo and i'm no i'm no music expert or or no uh i'm not a voodoo expert either but i know voodoo can sometimes take on a a, an evil connotation i don't know one way or the other if that is the truth of it or or not but he said he wanted to he wanted Abel's, and he brought him back to do music for us um he wanted to create a sort of a a sinister Negro spiritual, but it—he wanted to hear the black voices in an orchestral uh, form, but wanted the music surrounding them to be sinister. So you had these innocent-sounding voices surrounded by this malevolent sonicness, and I, that works perfectly with you know the film's plot and theme overall. How these
0: innocent people are clouded by this uh, this malevolent group. I actually held off using much of the score in this episode because so much of it is like... Like, it would really jangle your nerves just listening to our show and I wanted you guys to just get into it. But it's a masterful score. So, next time you're watching the film, listen out for the innocence of the choral black voices being used and the sinister strings in the background representing white voodoo. In horror, specifically, uh, strings when it comes to the score have a direct line to your spine. So uh, when the uh, composer can go, uh, it just makes you uncomfortable and shuffle in your seat because he's uh, he's kind of poking you with notes mm-hmm. and, uh, and and sounds that uh, put you in that space. And uh, there's this uncomfortable kind of melody uh running through the whole thing where it's it's alluring but at the same time it's got this foreboding to it mm, yeah
7: akila you're the music expert what yeah what were your
4: thoughts uh, it's on it? that but there's actually supposed to be a hidden message in the um initial score mm-hmm. which is uh, swahili in swahili it's sakiza kwawahenga which is listen to your ancestors mm. and I did listen back and it is one of those things which you don't notice but it's kind of really ominously said at the beginning I was
0: like what does that mean and I was like listen to your ancestors so it's kind of like it's this warning literally translates to something bad is coming run and when I read those words I was like yes that is exactly what I got from that song (laughs) (laughs) it's as you say a warning but one that transcends language I love it. We're going to end on that now. I've been Alex Shaw.
7: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And get out.
7: (laughs) (laughs) You've got to write it down, otherwise I don't. I thought
0: of it at the time. Do you want to do that one again? No, it's fine.
7: You bastard. (laughs) Sweet.